Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show, this week we'll be talking about the mysterious death of Jonathan Luna. Jonathan Paul Luna, born April 21st of 1965 and died December 4th of 2003, was an assistant United States attorney in Baltimore, Maryland, who was found dead under mysterious circumstances. Luna had been stabbed 36 times with his own penknife before he drowned in a creek next to his car in rural Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Investigations have proven inconclusive and there is a debate on whether Luna's death was murder or suicide. Now we get into his personal life. Luna was born on the 21st of October 1965 and grew up in the Patterson Housing Project near Yankee Stadium in the South Bronx of New York City. His father was Filipino and his mother an African-American from the American South. Luna received his undergraduate degree from Fordham University. He later studied at the University of North Carolina School of Law where he was roommates with Reggie Shuford. He worked at Arnold and Porter in Washington, D.C. from 1993 to 1994 and the Federal Trade Commission from 1994 through to 1997. Luna served as a prosecutor in the Brooklyn borough of New York City before moving to Baltimore to become an assistant United States attorney. During Luna's time in North Carolina, he met Angela Hopkins, a smart and pretty medical student. He was smitten when he first laid eyes on her. They dated exclusively, often holding hands in public, but really kissing because apparently Angela was too modest for that. The couple married on August 29th of 1993, and they had two children. Now, Luna was determined to make it out of the South Bronx's rough-and-tumble Patterson Homes, one of New York City's largest public housing projects, and within sight of the lights of his beloved Yankee Stadium. While other neighborhood boys were shooting hoops or getting into trouble, Luna would tuck himself away in his mother's first-floor apartment and read one of the many books in his mother's linen closet. In high school, Joey Luna frequently showed up for class wearing suits and ties. With curly hair and a runner's physique, the six-foot-tall Luna was handsome. Tiger Woods-level handsome. He loved clothes and his friends dubbed him a fashionista. Raised by a Filipino father who waited tables at neighborhood restaurants and an African-American mother who grew up in the Deep South, Luna eventually set his sights on law school. After graduating with a history degree from Fordham University in New York in 1987, Luna visited Germany. He enjoyed new places and thought the trip before entering law school would tide him over until he could afford to do more trips overseas. Towards the end of his first year at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, he found out his father had cancer. Without hesitation, Luna returned home to tend to him. When an opportunity arose in 1999 to work for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore, Luna jumped at the chance. 
Now, Jonathan Luna has been described as an energetic, well-liked federal prosecutor whose death shocked his friends and colleagues in December of 2003. Luna was a native of New York City, graduated from Fordham University and the University of North Carolina Law School. He had worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore, Maryland for the previous four years. The 38-year-old prosecutor lived with his wife and two young sons in Elkridge, Maryland, about 10 miles from his office in the Federal District Court building in Baltimore, Maryland. Now, Luna worked hard, staying late and coming in early, and Luna earned the respect of his seasoned colleagues. He was smart, funny, and loyal. Now, during his four years with the office, Luna prosecuted about 80 criminal cases and six civil cases. Many of them involved drugs, but there were others. The Baltimore man he helped put away for 15 years for sexually abusing his seven-year-old daughter, and the man sentenced to 120 months for sexual exploitation of a minor. Other cases of Luna's included one against a man who plotted to burn down a home to force six Mexican men out of a neighborhood. He also tried three men involved in a violent crack cocaine distribution network in Baltimore. All the defendants entered guilty pleas. Luna had also prosecuted cases against a man who videotaped a neighbor's child as she slept in her home. It appeared that everything was going great until the arrival of a new boss two years later, and I'm going to butcher this name, Thomas DeBaggio, who replaced Battaglia in 2001 when Governor Paris Glending appointed her to the Court of Appeals, who didn't much care for Luna. The young prosecutor had cut deals in a case or two over Thomas DeBaggio. Objections. I do apologize if I get that name wrong. U.S. Attorney Thomas DeBaggio, however, has rejected any suggestion that Luna was at risk of being fired from his job. Hours after Luna's death, Thomas DeBaggio declared, quote, We will find out who did this, and we are dedicated to bringing that person responsible for this tragedy to justice. End quote. His boss, who he had some friction with, tried to play off that there wasn't any friction between them and refused to discuss their friction and their problems with anyone. Which is in complete contradiction to what transpired in the office between them because it was no secret around the office that DeBaggio didn't like him, said former colleagues of the two men. He had given Luna a less than favorable performance review and put him on notice. One day, DeBaggio stormed into Luna's office with an edict to pack his bags. Evans, a colleague, suggested that Luna get a lawyer. He hired White, his former colleague in the office. DeBaggio said, and I quote, don't come into work the next day and you can't do that, White said. I spoke with him and they changed course. He didn't deserve to be removed. End quote. He and Jonathan didn't see eye to eye, recalls Andrew White, a former prosecutor in that office who's now in private practice. If you get on the wrong foot with Thomas DeBaggio, it's difficult to get back in good standing. End quote. Now, as I understand it, Luna was quite disturbed by DeBaggio's dislike, and his colleagues even said so. He became less attentive to his work, less focused. Apparently, that's what they said. A week before his death, he confided in, and I'm going to butcher this name, Tuminelli, that he was considering leaving the U.S. Attorney's Office and going out on his own. Quote, Jonathan was a human and certainly felt the effects of his own office's scrutiny, and he was struggling with that, White says. End quote. Now we get into Luna's very mysterious death. On Wednesday the 3rd of December 2003, Luna was in the midst of a trial involving two men charged with running a drug ring out of a music studio and spent the morning in court and the evening hammering out a plea deal with defense attorneys. It was going to be presented to the judge the next morning and Luna wanted no mistakes. The judge, William D. Quarles Jr., had fined him $25 a few days earlier for showing up late. Quarles was a stickler. 
Shortly after 9 o'clock that night, Luna left a voicemail for one of the defence lawyers. He left his office for his home sometime after 6pm, but returned to his office later that evening. At 11.38pm on the night he died, Luna left the Baltimore courthouse and went northeast on I-95. He used his easy pass on I-95 into Delaware, but not on the New Jersey and Pennsylvania turnpikes. After three toll interchanges, he switched to buying toll tickets for some very strange reason. At 12.57am, $200 was withdrawn from Luna's bank account from the ATM at the JFK Plaza Service Center near Newark, Delaware. At 2.47am, he crossed the Delaware River toll bridge to the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and at 3.20am, his debit card was used to buy gas at the Sunoco King of Prussia Service Plaza. At 4.04am, his car exited the turnpike at the Reading-Lancaster interchange. The toll ticket had a spot of his blood on it, suggesting that he was already injured. His car was parked at the back of the Sensing and Weaver Well Drilling Company in Denver, Pennsylvania, Bringnock Township, before it was later driven into the creek. At 5am, the first employee of Sensing and Weaver arrived, and half an hour later at 5.30am, the car was noticed with its lights off and the front end into the stream. Money was strewn around the, inside the car along with cell phone equipment. I think it was about $200 it was strewn about within the car. Blood was smeared over the driver's door in the front left of the car and a large pool of blood on the floor on the back seat, according to a police search warrant application. The affidavit also said that Luna had a traumatic wound on the right side of his head. Luna was face down in the stream under the car engine. He was wearing a suit and black overcoat with his court ID around his neck. Although stabbed 36 times with his own penknife around the chest and neck plus a head injury, the death was due to drowning when he apparently fell face first into a creek. Lancaster County Coroner Dr. Barry Welp said Luna was dressed in a suit and overcoat. His wallet with identification and cash was in his pocket, but it was unclear whether he had been robbed. Coroner Welp said that the assistant U.S. attorney had been brutalized with multiple stab wounds that could have been caused by a penknife and then drowned in the creek. A federal law enforcement official at the time told reporters on condition of anonymity that they were defensive wounds. Welp, however, said that he did not observe any defensive wounds during the autopsy. Defensive wounds are typically found, as I understand it, on the hands and arms when a victim tries to protect himself from the knife thrusts of an attacker. Welp said Luna's wounds were all in the neck and upper chest area. Luna's family members and friends said they believed his death was connected to his job, as during his career, as I quoted before, he had prosecuted drug dealers, armed robbers, and child molesters. No suspect or motive for murder were determined. The federal authorities, FBI, leaned towards calling it a suicide and came to the conclusion he was alone from the time he left his office until his body was found, but the local Lancaster County authorities, including two successive coroners, ruled it a homicide. Additional evidence collected during the investigation captured a second blood type and a partial print as well as some grainy footage from near the time of the gas station purchase made with Luna's credit card at the Sunoco Service Plaza. Now we're going to get into the Smith & Poindexter drug case. The discovery of Luna's body came at the close of his prosecution of a violent drug trafficking organization. Jonathan Luna had been prosecuting Baltimore-based rap musician Dion Lionel Smith and his one-time associate Walter Orley Poindexter, who were accused of heroin distribution and running a violent heroin ring from their stash house record studio. Quote, This is not the first time that legitimate businessmen have been caught up in the wrongdoings of their friends, end quote, said Baltimore defense attorney Kenneth W. Ravenel. Mr. Smith grew up in the neighborhood but the fact that he may know people who are involved in the criminal milieu doesn't mean that he's involved in any wrongdoing, Mr. Ravenel said. 
Ravenel describes Smith, who is 32 years old, as a silent partner in Stash House Records and an inspiring rap artist. Smith was charged along with Walter Orley Poindexter, who was 28 years old, in a five-count indictment with heroin distribution and conspiracy charges. The indictment alleges that Poindexter, also known by the nickname Fella, shot and killed Alvin L. Jones on January 22nd of 2001 because Poindexter believed that Jones had burglarized one of the drug group's stash houses. Without elaboration, federal prosecutors said in court papers that the case against Poindexter and Smith is related to separate drug and gun charges brought against Warren Grace, who was 23 years old, who described himself in a financial affidavit as a self-employed rap artist. Now, the case, by all accounts, should have been a slam dunk, however, the case wasn't going as smoothly as Luna had hoped it would. Luna's drug trafficking case was falling apart because he neglected to provide defense attorneys with critical mitigating information. You see, the chief witness, Warren Grace, was a convicted heroin dealer working as a paid FBI informant, but as Harrisburg author Bill Keisling detailed in his 2005 book on the case, The Midnight Ride of Jonathan Luna, Grace had broken the conditions of the confidential informant programs, slipping out out of his electronic monitoring device and having heroin unrelated to the case in his vehicle amongst other allegations. That information came out during the trial and defense attorneys accused Luna of failing to disclose it. Because of this, Luna and the defense lawyers then agreed to a plea bargain after three days of trial. For both men, the deal dropped conspiracy counts, which carry a sentence of 25 years to life, and Mr. Smith was allowed to plead guilty to drug distribution and use of a firearm with a potential sentence of 8 to 10 years, or so the lawyers said. So in the end, Smith pleaded guilty to distribution of heroin and use of a handgun in a drug trafficking crime. Poindexter pleaded guilty to three counts of distribution of heroin. Conspiracy charges against them were dropped. Smith and Poindexter were in jail at the time of Luna's death. Smith's attorney, Kenneth Ravenel, said it would make no sense for his client or Poindexter to be involved. According to Ravenel, the plea deal that Smith agreed to was the same deal that he offered to the prosecutors two weeks before the trial. Ravenel told a TV news anchor Mr. Luna was instrumental in negotiating the deal and convincing his office that it was a proper deal so that both men had the deal they sought from the prosecution. End quote. Investigators pored over Luna's financial records and computer files and combed through his phone logs and Palm Pilot entries. They also looked into other cases Luna had prosecuted in the past few years, which included drug gangs and violent criminals, but came up with no promising leads. Authorities found traces of blood from a second person in Luna's car, but released no information on the results of a DNA analysis. An anonymous law enforcement source said the authorities also found a partial fingerprint in the car. As the investigation proceeded, authorities began to turn up unusual trips to Philadelphia by Luna, personal debts, and private internet communications. Sources told reporters that investigators had found Luna's name on adult websites. The sources said that the messages sought women for sexual encounters. Some sources also said that the location where Luna's body was found is a place where people have said to seek out other people for sexual encounters. However, local officials have denied that the area is such a location. Luna's father told authorities that Luna had actually traveled to the Philadelphia area several times in the months preceding his death. He even canceled a Thanksgiving weekend trip to New York City, telling his father, quote, I have a case. I have to go to Pennsylvania. End quote. Now, officials have said that he had no court business in Pennsylvania. However, lawyers connected to the drug conspiracy case that was underway in Baltimore at the time have said that a key witness in that case was being detained in the Philadelphia area and that Luna went there several times to interview him. News coverage citing law enforcement sources also began to speculate that Luna had killed himself. Keisling calls it a well-timed hit job on Luna's reputation. Ryu Lin, the attorney who worked with Luna, has never believed a word of it, and he 
blamed federal investigators for smearing his friend's good name. Quote, the very people who should have looked after him in his death didn't do so and instead went 180 degrees in the other direction and decided it was useful to spread scandalous and unfounded rumours. End quote. Several sources say Welp's successor as coroner, Dr. G. Gary Kirchner, was pressured to change the autopsy report and reclassify Luna's death as a suicide. Kirchner, who died in August, reportedly refused to do so. Quote, I spent time in Gary's office and he was scared to death, Martino said. He knew it wasn't suicide, he knew it was homicide, but all the evidence disappeared and the coroner was told not to talk. End quote. Now we get into theories. So the first one is suicide. It was initially reported that Luna did not have the expected substantial defense wounds on his hands and that many of the wounds are shallow, which are called hesitation wounds in a suicide victim. Federal law enforcement officials in March 2004 told CNN that investigators were divided on the question of whether Luna was killed or whether the dozens of small knife wounds were self-inflicted. When the body was discovered, Lancaster County Coroner Dr. Barry Welp said that Luna had suffered a number of shallow prick marks on his chest and in addition to several deeper, more serious stab wounds. Although rare, there have been instances of suicides by stabbing, which have been marked by so-called hesitation wounds that barely penetrate the skin. Now, interestingly enough, some two months after Luna's killing, investigators found a penknife in the field near where his body was found. Authorities believe it was Luna's own pocket knife and that it was the knife that caused his wounds. Officials have not said whether they found fingerprints or blood on the knife, nor why it was not discovered during an extensive search of the scene on the day Luna's body was found, and I believe that that extensive search involved over 150 police officers. Authorities sought assistance from the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology to examine medical and psychological evidence in the case in an effort to resolve the sensitive question of whether Luna could have killed himself. Autopsy findings by the medical examiner in Lancaster County, PA, have not been made public, and forensic pathologist Dr. Wayne K. Ross, who performed the autopsy, has refused to discuss the case with reporters at any time. Now, some suggested motives for suicide were that Luna was to take a polygraph test concerning $36,000 which disappeared from a bank robbery case that he had prosecuted some years prior. The trial was supposed to be short and simple. A Baltimore man, Nako Brown, was being tried for a string of bank robberies and Luna and his co-prosecutor had key evidence and the testimony of a witness that eventually would put Brown away for 25 years. The evidence was tens of thousands of dollars seized from a safe in the apartment of Brown's accomplice. It had been packaged in three heat-sealed see-through plastic containers, dollar bills in one, stacks of fives in another. A third container had $10 and $20. One day during trial, Special Agent Anthony Tony Campano wheeled the unmarked cash into the courtroom on a cart. When I saw the FBI agent with a cart of money rolling down the hall of the federal courthouse, I was stunned, said Kenneth Ravenel Brown's attorney. It was unusual to bring cash into the courtroom, end quote. After a jury found Brown guilty on September 26th of 2002, something odd occurred. One of the packages of money, the ones with the $10 and $20 bills, went missing, about $36,000 worth. You could have knocked me over with a feather, said Judge Andre M. Davis, who presided over the case and is now on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. You would never expect something like that in a court, certainly not in federal court. End quote. Now, federal authorities launched an investigation, even administering lie detector tests to at least five government employees, but the money was never recovered. 
Rumours circulated around the federal courthouse that Luna may have had substantial credit card debt at the time, leading some to question whether it's something to do with the missing cash. He was scheduled to take a polygraph according to April Brooks, who was a former Baltimore FBI official. He was troubled because it happened during his watch, said Joseph Evans, Luna's supervisor at the time. But personally, I have a hard time thinking he stole the money, end quote. Evans, now an assistant federal public defender in Baltimore, said the money was left unattended at times, leaving so many opportunities for so many people to snag it. Campano said it was the responsibility of the US Attorney's Office to make sure the money was stored safely. There's another little wrinkle to that story that no one has ever gotten to the bottom of, although a lot of people have tried. What was more interesting was that Luna had to actually filled out a loan application online about the time of this trial. Now, according to a federal law enforcement source, Luna's loan application was for about $30,000, but it was cancelled not long after the evidence money was discovered to be missing. Authorities have also determined that Luna had credit card debts of around $25,000 at the time of his death. He also had as many as 16 credit cards some of which he had held without his wife's knowledge of them. It was also noted that Luna came into $10,000 after the $36,000 went missing, with no explanation ever coming forth of its origin. In addition to possible financial problems, several legal sources said that Luna felt that he was on the outs with his supervisors in the US Attorney's Office where he'd worked for four years. There is also an accidental suicide theory that Luna was fabricating a kidnapping and attack and that he went too far. Now we get into the homicide theory. The Lancaster County coroner who performed the autopsy ruled Luna's death a homicide by drowning. Luna left his glasses, which he needed to drive, and his cell phone on his desk. He had called defense attorneys earlier in the night, saying he would fax over documents that night, but they never arrived. The pool of blood in the back seat would also suggest that Luna was in the back seat and someone else was driving. There is evidence to suggest that he may very well have been the victim of a vicious attack because other federal prosecutors have been the target of violence in the past. For example, federal prosecutor Crane Wales was shot to death in Seattle in an unsolved murder. The search for the killer has focused on at least one of the cases he had prosecuted. I will do an episode on that case later on in this podcast series. Federal prosecutor Larry Basella, now in private practice, was the target of a thwarted murder-for-hire scheme by ex-CIA agent Edwin Wilson, whom Basella had put behind bars for selling weapons and explosives to Libya. Now we get into subsequent events. In early February 2007, a private investigator and an attorney, both hired by Luna's family, filed a petition for right of mandamus in order to force the Lancaster County coroner to conduct an inquest into Luna's death after an earlier request was declined. Private investigator William Buckingham, who is a former police detective, says he believes there is more to the case than what officials are letting on. Quote, I know who sanctioned it, who did it, and who was behind the hit. If I know it, why don't the state police know it? End quote. Buckingham says he filed a right to know request for coroner records, but his request was denied. However, interestingly enough, the documents were found in the basement of Lancaster's government centre. Lancaster County's district attorney then requested to seal the records, which was later granted by a judge. You have a cover-up, which I think is what this is, by both the FBI and the Pennsylvania State Police, said Buckingham. Lancaster County's coroner says he was surprised to find out the records were in Lancaster all along. Quote, Since I took office 12 years ago, we never had possession of those charts, said Dr. Stephan, and I'm going to butcher this last name, Diamantoni. Quote, I have been told the physical chart and physical records had gone to the FBI. Previously, when we had requested the records, we were told there was no Jonathan Luna records in the archives. 
Buckingham says he'd like to see the case solved. Quote, he had a wife and two kids at home and he never got justice. I've made up my mind and I will not rest until this case is solved. End quote. In February 2020, the LNP newspaper in Lancaster County requested that a judge unseal coroner's records pertaining to Luna's death that were found to be in possession of the county, instead of federal prosecutors as had been previously thought. On January 13th of 2021, Judge David Ashworth ruled that the documents would remain sealed, writing that releasing the records would pose a threat of substantially hindering or jeopardizing the open, active and ongoing criminal investigation into the death of Jonathan Luna. End quote. The case still remains unsolved to this very day. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions podcast. Until next time, next on Unanswered Question. The Amber Room was a chamber decorated in amber panels backed with gold leaf and mirrors. Located in the Catherine Palace of, and I'm going to butcher this name, Tzarkoe Selo near St. Petersburg, Russia. Constructed in the 18th century in Russia, the room was dismantled and eventually disappeared during World War II. 